0: do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there. Welcome to Talk About Talk, the communication focused podcast that provides us with the knowledge, strategies, and confidence to enrich our relationships and enhance our career success. I'm Dr. Andrea Voynitski. Yes, you can call me Andrea. And no, I'm not a medical doctor. I have a doctoral degree in business. So I only respond to marketing emergencies. <laughs> Our guest expert today certainly is a medical doctor. Today, we are talking about a very important topic. I'm hopeful that what you will learn in this episode will physically, medically benefit you. We are talking about how to talk to your doctor. So whether you have a wellness checkup or some sort of medical testing or urgent care or even palliative care, our goal as a patient is to receive the most accurate, complete and effective diagnosis and treatment. The general question that we'll focus on in this episode is how to communicate with your doctor to ensure you receive the very best care. I'm very excited to introduce our guest expert here today, Dr. Joshua Tepper, the Chief Executive Officer at North York General Hospital. I met Dr. Tepper through my role as a Foundation Governor at North York General. Let me first tell you just a little bit about the hospital. North York General is situated near the corner of one of Toronto's busiest intersections, Highway 401 and the Don Valley Parkway. So huge volumes of patients are coming into this community and academic hospital from every direction. Yet, this hospital does a remarkable job of delivering exceptional patient care. I could list the accolades associated with this hospital for you, but instead, let me just tell you, that recently Newsweek did a comprehensive review of 1,000 hospitals in 11 countries and they ranked North York General as the second best hospital in Canada and one of the top 100 hospitals in the world. With a score of 91.0, they missed the top spot in Canada by just 0.1. I can tell you from my personal and professional experience with this hospital that North York General is truly world-class. Now, let me introduce Dr. Joshua Tepper, the CEO of North York General. After the interview, I will summarize his main points for us. You do not need to take notes. The summary is available for you in the show notes. If you go to talkabouttalk.com and click on Podcasts, you'll see the show notes there. Okay. Dr. Joshua Tepper completed medical school at McMaster University and his residency in family medicine at the University of Toronto. He holds a degree in public policy from Duke University, a Master's of Public Health from Harvard, and an Executive MBA from the Ivy School of Business, where he was also valedictorian. Throughout his career, he has always remained in active practice, serving marginalized populations and taking on clinical leadership roles. He has served as the Medical Director of the Inner City Health Associates and President of the Inner City Family Health Team. He was also previously the Vice President of the Society of Rural Physicians. Dr. Tepper's various positions have included Senior Medical Officer for Health Canada, Adjunct Scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, Research Consultant for the Canadian Institute of Health Information, Assistant Deputy Minister in the Health Human Resources Strategy Division of the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, and Vice President of Education at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. I don't think this man sleeps. As you will hear in our conversation, he admits his most productive work time is 11 p.m. till 1 a.m. What? On the morning that I met Dr. Tepper, he told me that he had an important meeting immediately afterwards, and then he's headed downtown to teach for four hours. I met Dr. Tepper in his office on the ninth floor of North York General. So yes, you will hear ambulance sirens, amongst other things in the background. Thank you very, very much for joining us and sharing your expertise on how to talk to your doctor. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with a very basic question. What do doctors wish patients would do in preparation for and during an appointment? First
1: of all, we just want people to come in and see us when they need to. And so we wouldn't want people at the end of this to feel deterred because, oh, there's all this work to do. Ultimately, if you're not feeling great or you have questions, just come and see us. But it is helpful if you can give a little bit of thought ahead of time to what you need out of that appointment, and what are the important things. and I often increasingly have patients make lists for me, okay. and those lists are really helpful. And then, when you actually come into the appointment, uh, you know pull out the list and use it. Don't try to remember it. Like I'm not upset that you made a list, uh, so pull
0: it out and use it and start with the most important things. Okay. Okay, so you said at the beginning, don't hesitate to make an appointment. And I have to tell you personally, and I've heard this from other people, it's like, well, should I make an appointment? No, I'll be fine. The doctor will think it's nothing. I'm wasting their time. I'm wasting resources. How do you know when to make an appointment? Uh,
1: You know, I think you have to be your own best judge. And it's more important to err on the side of caution. And the other thing is, even if it turns out to be physically not important, if it's emotionally distressing for you... Mm. That's enough reason to come in just for the mental reassurance. I don't want you at home worrying for three weeks. I want you to come in and have this conversation.
0: Right. So a written list. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, written on your phone, whatever. Right. But it, it is helpful because, you know, I, I do that before coming into a, a meeting. Like you and I today, you, you thought ahead of time about the questions to make this process go smoother. It just makes this interaction go a lot smoother and you know you're getting the important stuff out early.
0: One of the things that I've started to do actually, um, partly because I have three kids and I'm managing their healthcare as well, is I'm keeping a list in my phone of all of the appointments that we've had and I've personally found that to be really helpful. Because when Mm -hmm. you're in the moment and they're asking you questions about health history, about previous appointments, I have dates and everything all, so I guess that, that's part Absolutely. of that too, right? The other
1: thing, and two other quick thoughts is, you know, one, I think more and more in the future, we're going to see uh, what's called asynchronous appointments, meaning uh, text messages, emails, phone calls. We have not had a lot of that in healthcare and in Canada right now, right? but in the United States, places like Kaiser, 50% of their interactions are digital and, and largely, again, asynchronous. So you can have digital live-to-live Skyping type things, But these are texts back and forth. And that will really encourage people to say, listen, this is happening, should I come in or not? And I now text with a lot of my patients to secure means and email. And again, we can sort of help triage. And the one other clarification is you shouldn't wait until you have a full list. If they are truly minor for you, That's fine. Right. But I don't want people to take away that you have to have a list before you come in. You can come in with just one thing.
0: Right. The list could be one. The list could be one. Exactly. But I I think your point about prioritizing as well. So tell the doctor first what your primary concern Mm -hmm. is and then go down the list.
1: And then what I do, um, you know, what I, especially when I see a list, I actually think, oh, this is good. And so they may say, oh, the first thing on my list. And what I'll often do is say, you know what, just read me your whole list because then I can actually help prioritize as well. Uh, Because the worst thing for me is when I spent, you know, my 15, 20 minutes with somebody um, talking about their tennis elbow or whatever it is, and then they say, well, okay. And as they get up, they say, and by the way, there's been this horrible chest pain as well when I play tennis. (laughs) I'm like, you know, maybe we should have started with that. And so if I see a list, I'll often just say, you know, this is great, you know, tell me what else is on the list quickly. And then I'll say, what's most important to you? And if it aligns with what I'm hearing, I'll say,
0: great. I've also heard that sometimes, I guess depending on what type of appointment you have, that bringing a friend or a family member can be a good idea. What do you think about that?
1: Absolutely. I'm very open to that. I just always try to make sure it's truly what the patient wants. What I don't want, especially sometimes with teenagers or even elderly people, that this is truly a voluntary uh, other person in the room, uh, as opposed to somebody else intruding into that, and so I will try to just find a quick moment to really just say, "Would you like this person here?" In case there's something they didn't want to say in front of their their partner mm. or spouse, because it can be hard. Somebody says, "Oh, I'll totally come with you." What do you sort of say? No, like it. It's, it feels like a generous offer, so I'm very open to it. I just try to, as a physician, to assess out: is is this truly what the patient wants, or is somebody else? inserting themselves right. uh, it can be very helpful to help remember things it can be very helpful uh, for the patients who have memory or who are anxious or confused and especially for mental health and I have a lot of patients who have very severe mental health um, problems it, it can be really helpful.
0: I think your point about it being common for teens and for older people to have someone with them and to not necessarily have that person be welcome in the patient's mind yeah. is a great one. And again, sometimes
1: that physical exam is a time when I can then be alone for the patient and I'll say, okay, you know, mom, why don't you step out? And then when I'm taking the blood pressure and listening to the lungs or examining the knee or the ankle or whatever it is, it's just a chance for me to ask a few other questions or just open the door and say, oh, you know, was there anything else you were hoping we Mm. could chat about? And that's when things, I'm worried about my acne, I'm worried about sex, I'm worried about, you know, birth control, all these things where I have a question. Just try to create that space and see what happens. And they otherwise may not come up. Yeah.
0: Is there anything that patients do with some regularity that make you roll your eyes or that you just wish they would stop doing? Honestly, no. (laughs) I
1: I mean, you know, honestly, I think patients, in my experience, are just generally quite sort of grateful and appreciative and thoughtful. And when I find they're not, they're angry or they're, quote-unquote, demanding, you know, it's usually coming from a place that I can understand. You know, they're in pain they're suffering, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're in a state of crisis. I understand why this behavior is what it is, and is it pleasant to receive? No, but it, it's not personal to me. It's reflective of, the, of where this person is, unfortunately, in that moment. And so, no, one of the best parts about medicine is it's a people profession for the most part. and right. You have to like people and, and be present with them and be where they're at.
0: So talk to me about the Google effect, people are self-diagnosing from Googling their symptoms on the internet. It doesn't drive me nuts, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's modern
1: healthcare, it's modern society, right? People are checking Yelp out before they go into a restaurant, people are, you know, going on to the Facebook pages of organizations, people are going on to websites, like people are Googling every aspect of their life to try to inform themselves better from where they want a burger to who's going to be their heart surgeon. And so why would I suddenly expect them to use the vast internet uh, for every part of their life, you know, for, for buying a house, searching for mortgage, you know, and then suddenly on something that's so important to them, like their health, they're going to be like, oh, now I'm not going to use the internet. Right. Like, that's not, that's, you know, not what I would do as a patient. Right. Why would I expect them to suddenly isolate information from themselves? What I do do, though, um, is I try to guide them towards good sites. I try to help them curate the web. You know, I think the challenge for all of us on the internet is, um, you know, what website do you go to? Uh, Do you go to Yelp or do you go to this or do you go to that? Do you go to, you know? And so I do try to recommend to my patients um, and help them navigate the web and curate um, and so if they're worried about vaccinations, I'll say these are the two or three websites I really recommend that you go to. You know, the Public Health Agency of Canada, the Centre for Disease Control. If they have questions about cancer treatment or screening, I'll say, you know, go to Cancer Care Ontario's website. So I do try to help them curate um,
0: and navigate. So it sounds as if, based on the other conversations I've had with other doctors, that you may be a little bit more enlightened in terms of being open to patients coming in and being informed to some extent from internet sources. But I'm also hearing that if you're going to do that, make sure you're on quality, non-fake right. news websites. Can you share with us what are some of the more highly regarded ones that are more, for example, grounded in science? Yeah. So, you know, just one quick point. I don't know if I'm more enlightened or
1: just about, you know, <laughs> more realistic about... Also more people, humble. But it used to be this... It wasn't, oh, I went to this website, da-da-da. It was, oh, I was at a party last night, and such-and-such and such said this, or I was talking to my mom, or I was chatting with my neighbor. Like People have always solicited outside information. Now it's just easier, and there's more of it. But people would always come in and say, oh, you know, you gave me this, but my aunt always says, you know, it's much better to use this. Now it's not their aunt. It's somebody on a chat room over in some other country. Right. But this idea that people are soliciting third-party information of various levels of quality. And other times I remember people coming in saying, actually, my dad's a neurosurgeon down in Texas, and actually he wondered about this and this. And you're like, okay, that's like going to a better website than you know your whatever neighbor who's had a couple drinks and has a view of your rash. Um, so the point is, there's the fact that people have always solicited outside information and advice is not new it's just now it's digital and there's more of it
0: so when patients are sharing the information that they have with their doctor they should tell them the source of yeah, course i think it's helpful when people say i was reading and i always say oh where were you reading that online oh
1: tell me more what website and then that leads to your question about what websites do i recommend and yep so i typically do like publicly funded typically government type sites like the Center for Disease Control or the Public Health Agency of Canada type agencies uh, you know and people are incredibly sophisticated these days um, and so people will go and even read medical journals now because they 're online, and a lot of them are free or they 'll pay five bucks for the article or three bucks for the article and so again, some of the i 'll talk about it if you 're interested in that. People are very, you know, you've got a PhD yourself, right? You're very capable of navigating some fairly sophisticated material. But I might say, you know, if you're interested in this, here's three or four journals. If you're gonna go and spend a bunch of money on buying a couple articles about a health issue, here's a couple journals that we think are really reputable journals. Um, And so we'll have that or, you know, and and what I say is be very careful about online, like blogs, like opinions or opinions.
0: When we're reading the news, we try to always have in the back of our mind to be careful, right? Yeah. In terms of considering the source and not falling for the clickbait. And I know that right. the clickbait exists out there in the medical websites or the mm-hmm. opinion websites that are masquerading yeah. as medical websites. So that's that's a great point.
1: Yeah.
0: Just to shift gears a little bit. Yeah, please. I'm a big fan of Atal Gawande. And in his book, Being Mortal, he highlights that hope is not a plan. And I was rereading in preparation for this interview, one of the things that I read said that he means that for both the patient as well as the doctor or the Mm -hmm. care provider, right? That hope is not a plan. And so this is a question that's a little bit turning the original question on its head, but how can we as patients... Encourage our doctors to be as open and forthcoming as possible We know that it's important for us to be open and transparent and Mm -hmm. thorough in what we're communicating But we also want the doctor to be the same way. How can we encourage them to do that?
1: That's a great question actually Um, And it's funny I spend most of my time obviously as a physician thinking how do I create a safe space for people to talk openly and feel they can share whatever it is they need to but it's a it's a good question or what what allows me to be as open and forthright you know one is ask questions because your questions will push me farther in in thinking through and in sharing and so the more questions you ask uh the more it'll push me and prompt me to to be fully disclosing Mm. um and they can be open-ended questions you know is there anything else i should be thinking about Uh, is there anything else that other patients who are in my situation might also have asked just things that will broaden my mind to giving you more information you know you know simply saying you know I'm somebody who likes to know all the risks. I'm somebody who likes to have as much information as possible. So if there's anything else you'd like to tell me, I'd, really, I'd be very open to it. I try to do that for you as a patient. Is there anything else today? These can be hard conversations, but I want you to feel comfortable talking about these things. Um, things like that. You know, you can flip it back, if you will, and Risk. just sort of say, is there anything else you think I should know? I'm somebody who likes to have a lot of information, etc. Yeah, is there anything else? Is there any risks... Is there any other options or risks? Is there anything else this could be beyond what we've talked about?
0: I feel like some of these questions might be good things to add to our list before we come into the doctor, right?
1: Yeah, I think they can be. I mean, now, again, these are sort of follow-up questions to a specific issue. So uh, as opposed to sort of open-ended questions, they're more like, okay, I'm coming in with these headaches. And now as we talk about the headaches, here are some ways of broadening that conversation mm-hmm. out. So I have lots of
0: information. Yeah. Okay, here is the ultimate question. Uh Um, We all know that we should tell our doctors everything. We should not be shy. And we've all heard that doctors have seen it all, right? It's basically become a cliche. But many of us are still hesitant and embarrassed to tell our doctors everything. Do you have any advice for patients on how to get over the embarrassment of sharing everything? You know, the peeing in a cup the seeing me naked the whatever the horrible thing is that they don't want to talk about
1: you know a lot of it is still i think does rest with to some degree the physicians and the healthcare structures i'd like to think we're getting better at some of this stuff i'd like to you know to use those two examples i remember when i was in training um you know we would sort of hand people the cup in the room and sort of point them down the hall and they'd carry the cup down the hall with them and actually now in my clinic the cups are all in the bathroom you can just go into the bathroom and take the cup out there and then there's a little door that you can put it in i remember when i was in training that we used to sort of write notes and the patient would step behind the curtain and change and now like, i just completely leave the room and give them total space um as opposed to just sort of drawing this thing curtain and you know pretending i didn't know, know they were undressing on the other side or knowing but you know ignoring it and i think we're much better hopefully at prompting questions you know the questions i ask now and how i ask them before i might have said things like do you have any concerns about your sex life or are you sexually active and now i ask questions like are you sexually active with men women or both mm. um more you know, explicit. much more explicit i you know and now these days uh, especially in the populations i serve uh, you know when i first meet patients i'm like oh hi I, you know i see your name is andrea H- how do you like to be identified and called And, you know, for somebody who never would have, you know, or might have taken years for them to get to the point of saying, actually, I'm not sure where I identify as a man or a woman or where I am on this gender fluid. I've suddenly created a space in the very first moment. And even if at that moment they say, oh, no, Andrew, they know I planted a seed, that next time they can come back and say, actually, it's more Andrew. Mm -hmm. Right? or I've wondered, and you just created it, or, or ask questions, you know, I used to just say, oh, how are things at home? You know, or, oh, are you married or not married? Right, and I would say, you know, what are your living arrangements? Do you have any concerns with intimate partner violence? Has it been, and I'll, I'll open it, like physical, verbal, and so I just try to cre- ask, I try to create space for the uncomfortable, and if people look embarrassed, I say, I ask this to everybody. Right. I ask this to everybody. And, I think and, everybody
0: wants to be your patient now, Dr. Tucker. No, I don't
1: know about that, but it is is—it is trying to give permission for these hard conversations, right? It is trying to anticipate what people may not want to talk to you about and, and, and creating that opening. And even if they don't take that opening today, they might take it in six months or a year. Or, you know, and I'll, you know, it's just trying to allow to create a, a, that really safe space. And then I think, you know, for patients, it's just, what is what is keeping you from sharing? And sometimes it is just that physical embarrassment. I think oftentimes it must be, right? I think it is. But other times it's, where's this information going to go? And especially now mm. that you see us, you've always seen us writing, but actually now we're, for better or for worse, you see us typing this into the screen, and we all we don't have this sense of where the heck does this data go, and who has access, and we read about files being lost. and. So if it's just pure embarrassment, that's one thing. But if it is concern about, it, like, you should ask. You know, if I tell you about this, who else knows? Who else has access to this chart? I see these notes. Is it to, who else gets to read these? Right. Like, ask if that's part of what's driving your reluctance. It's it's fair to um, inquire. Um, and then in fact, a lot of our charts can have what are called black boxes. And so we can black box certain in information. Mm. So patients can say, listen, um, You know, I don't care if you know about my peeing and my pooing, whatever. But when it comes to whatever this is, I want this black boxed. And we have ways of of sort of carving and and locking certain information uh, differently than other information.
0: Oh, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. If you had a family member who was having health issues but told you in confidence that they were shy about talking to their doctor about it, how would you coach them in terms of their mindset going into the doctor to be more transparent Mm -hmm. about their questions
1: yeah i I think it would be why are they shy is it something about that how that physician or nurse practitioner has interacted with you previously that has made you shy did they act in a way that made you feel like judged or judgmental did you talk about sex toys for example um and they seem to react uncomfortably so now you don't want to talk at all about you know anything about your sex life, mm. uh, What in fact you have all these questions uh, about you know, how do you clean them, risk of sexually transmitted and sharing sex toys, like maybe there's a whole range of questions you have now, um, but you felt, so what's wrong? or is it, is it something about what the providers created a space for, or is it actually just you have a hard time, in which case I just say this is important, just ask it, and if you need to use euphemism, sometimes what I've asked patients when I can tell they're I say write it out. Just give me a letter. Mm-hmm. Send me an email.
0: That's a great idea. So
1: I have had patients write me uh, very detailed letters, uh, draw me pictures, um, uh, write out letters, and I've just sat there. They've they've literally walked in the next appointment. Um, and I, you know, often when people are talking about very difficult things around spousal tension and they they just feel they're betraying their spouse or they don't they can't talk about it with getting too emotional or they're too embarrassed to talk about it they can write me a letter and they'll drop it off ahead or they'll come in and they'll hand it to me and I'll just read it and then I'll thank them for sharing it
0: so that's often what's hard to talk about you can write it out that is great advice and I, yeah. I heard you say something previously I think if a doctor's making you feel that uncomfortable that you're feeling judged, you probably need to get a new doctor. Yeah, right? I think
1: either you, or if you're confident enough and, and say, you, know, you feel like you can engage. Like, I, I had a patient once uh, come in and say to me, like, you know, we talked about this last time and, and I really felt you didn't hear me or you didn't listen to me. And, I, and that was great. Like, I, I was so apologetic and I said that was not my intent at all and I apologized and I, and I thanked him. I said, I hope you can always feel you can let me know. And I said, I don't know if I was distracted, but I apologize. Let's revisit it or let me get, try to hear you better. Um, you know, and I did, for example, I had a transgendered patient and I was pretty consistent in calling uh, them by their preferred name. Uh, but then one time I got it wrong and, uh, and they were great. They said, you know, just, just a quick reminder. I'm not upset, but I just, please, if you could really call me by what I prefer. I, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I do try and I wasn't upset to be reminded. Don't assume that people will take offense, don't assume that your doctor or nurse can't receive feedback and improve, because we want to do a good job. Maybe you thought they were recoiling because you were talking about whatever you were talking about, but you misread them, right? right? Maybe they just... Maybe
0: they had a stomachache.
1: Maybe they had a stomachache. Maybe their phone was going off and they were distracted of responding to their buzzing phone in their pocket, Right. Um, and you thought they were responding to yours. So, uh, before you change providers, give them a chance to do better and explain what better looks like for you.
0: Again, I think people are gonna be lined up to be one of your (laughs) patients. Is there anything else you wanna add in terms of advice to people who are looking to optimize their communication with their doctor?
1: Just to really see it as communication. You know, obviously we do tests and we do physical exams and stuff. Most of the value uh, is coming from the communication. Um, and so, yeah, I'll do a physical exam, and yes, I might order an x-ray or some blood work or whatever, but most of what I need is coming from the, the communication, and most of what you're going to need to get out of this is coming from the communication. And so, again, as we've been talking about, the more we can structure the communication part uh, to be as successful as possible is, is really the key. I, um
0: so that really speaks to the significance of this topic, right? I, Absolutely. Yeah. When I, when I was thinking about this topic, I said, this can really help people. It'll yeah. help people, hopefully disarm them from any embarrassment they have, but also give them strategies so that next time they go to their doctor, they feel more in control, but they're also just improving the quality of right. the communication and therefore the care that they're receiving.
1: As I've gotten older and more experienced, like obviously I still do lots of physical exams, but it has become a smaller part of how I use that. 20 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever because i'm really appreciating that so much of the nuance and so much of the what i actually need is coming from the 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 communication Mm. um and not just the laying on of hands there's still the laying on of hands but it's really uh the communication that allows that laying on of hands to be much more focused and and much more you know extracting more relevant information
0: interesting okay Let's move on to the five rapid fire questions then. Yeah, I was
1: nervous about these.
0: Are you okay? (laughs) No need for you to be nervous, that's funny. First question, what are your pet peeves?
1: So I think we share one uh, on this one, which is just clutter. I, I do tend to like sort of some white space and I think it's just, uh, I talked a lot about this with my spouse who perhaps has a different view on this. I think our lives are so full and so intense with information and with activity and with so much that just the more there the, there isn't just sort of additional visual noise um, or where it's hard to find things as easily. I haven't always been that way but I think as I've gotten older and there's my, you know, our. You know, midlife and things are so full with young kids and a busy clinical practice and administrative practice. Um, there's just so much to do that it just the shoes in the middle of the hallway, the mm-hmm. bags casually thrown down in the middle of the hallway, you know, papers strewn over the dining room table. It just it just feels like it just adds.
0: I agree. I think when you believe it, it becomes even more true. Right. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Right. And uh, so I did actually uh, read. The night before I started in this new job uh, that uh, Maria Kondo uh, did you tidying up book and it really resonated and yeah. it's a funny story so I, I was nervous I was first time hospital CEO I was nervous and so I couldn't sleep so I went on the library I downloaded an audiobook and um, it was this book and I ended up just I thought, this is great. So I got up in the middle of the night, like one in the morning, and I spent until like three or four in the morning doing the first two chapters of the book. My wife woke up, there's bags of all my (gasps) clean stuff. But I must say, like, my drawers have not reverted back. I didn't get through all the chapters in the whole house. When I open the closets in the morning, when I come home at night, when I... Whatever, it just feels a little bit easier.
0: So Gretchen Rubin, who's originally was studying happiness, recently published a book called Outer Order Inner Calm. But I feel like you could write yeah. the book. I don't know, certainly, uh, I think I'm a, f- a fan of it. Yeah. Okay, question number two. What type of learner are you?
1: I, I typically need to read to, to really assimilate knowledge and especially I think as I've gotten older and there's just so much more visual information noise, it's been, I've just appreciated that. and. It's interesting, I read a good book a few years ago in the Harvard Business Management series, and they just sort of talked about different learning styles and that it's really important as a leader to know what your learning style is and to communicate that to make best use. And so now I sort of tell people like, you know, I'd really love to meet with you on that, but if you could send me um, you know just a a couple bullet points ahead of time for me to think about or learn about or you know the fact today you very thoughtfully sent these questions ahead of time really helped me know I did read them and it gave me a chance to think I'm an active reader so I'll make notes Uh, the copy I first had actually has notes all over it oh really Um, not just quick bullet points because I am an active reader so I'll underline I'll highlight I'll write in the margins Um, do you write in your books? I uh, used to, yeah. Now I've gone mainly digital on my books now, yep. but when I had paper books... Because you don't want clutter around.
0: Right. That's exactly what I have what. to show you my book my bookshelf. They're all categorized by color.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, that okay. is awesome. Okay. Treatable. <laughs> Diagnosable, but awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <but>, uh, um... <laughs> okay. Question number three. Introvert or extrovert?
1: Um, I'm actually right in the middle. I've done the Myers-Briggs a couple times, and I think it is actually true. Like... I'm pretty right down the middle.
0: So you get energy both from being in a yeah. group and from
1: yeah, solitude? from solitude. And I find I need a bit of both. Like this interview, like well, just this interaction and the excitement of it will really get me through my day. Um, but I also know if I've had a day where I do three or four of these, and actually today's gonna to be an interesting day. I'm going from here to meet a sort of an international visitor, and then I'm going down to teach a bunch of doctors. And I know that sort of by the end, Of the day, I am going to need a little time to not have too much um, beyond, because this day is going to have a lot of, you know, I'm teaching for four hours this afternoon and this, and so I, so it, but it is a balance, um, and so I do find I I plunk right in the middle. Sounds intense, but
0: it's good to be aware that you need both, right? Yeah, exactly, and I think I'd become more aware uh, with time. Question number four. Communication preference for personal conversations. So I'm not talking about the work emails where you're copying the chair of the board on your next steps or whatever. It's more about you're trying to get something off your to-do list or answering a question from a friend or family member. What do you use? So it's
1: changed. Uh, in fact, I would argue it sort of started to go a bit of a full circle a while ago. It was just all face-to-face. And then I really just started using emails because I love the asynchronous nature of it. You know, I love the fact that I'm a late owl, uh, night owl, Um, and so I love the fact I could just sort of sit there from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., which is sort of my prime, prime thinking time, Um, and uh, and just sort of send emails, send communications, sort of do really, you know, just good connectivity, and and feel focused on it. But now, actually, I've been shifting back a little bit to a bit more of the face-to-face or the phone, particularly the phone. One thing about this job I was dreading was the commute because in my old job, I had like a seven-minute bike ride and that was it. It was a 10-minute bike ride. Now I've got, you know, 20 minutes in the car. But actually, I really use that time now to reconnect with friends, call my family. So I'm using that as just really nice sort of Downtime to.
0: So it sounds as if you're strategically using the various communication medium depending on what your objectives are, right, and what the constraints yeah. are. I guess.
1: I, I think I have in the last three years become much more purposeful or mindful of the of, of mediums for communication. Hmm. I, I think I've just been much become much more mindful. I've read a lot around email management, inbox management, time management. Um, I've read a lot more about some of these uh, sort of PET scans about the impact of digital technology on our brain pathways and stuff. And I'm not sure the science is perfect, but I, I have been much more deliberate about thinking about uh, communication as part of an act of leadership and communication um, in its role in my personal life and, mm-hmm. and how to be... Sort of deliberative about it. Email's
0: very, getting trashed right now, have you noticed? Yeah. People are like, just
1: stop with. Yeah. So and I think, uh, so I actually now teach a course about how to manage information, um, in particular email, uh, because I think there's very good evidence uh, about. Um, its impact on culture in an organization, Mm -hmm. its impact on personal wellness, uh, its impact on effectiveness and efficiency. um, And so it's like anything else. It's a tool that can be transformationally positive, um, but also transformationally risky. And it's how do we, like any good transformational tool, use it effectively.
0: Agree. I'm going to do an episode on email. I thought, right? Everybody wants that.
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And there's so many good, you know... um, Somebody who did a really good book on this is, uh, you know, the Four Hour Work Week. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. So hes, he's one a- of the people that inspired me to get into podcasting. Yeah, yeah. he's fantastic. And so I read I listened to his audio book, The Four Hour Work Week, and you know, much of it did not relate to what yeah. I do. But he has a chapter on email. And that chapter is the one I give out as reading. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. and there's a couple other books. That I you know use. what
0: I'm going to do? I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so that the listeners can yeah. take, a, take a look at that. Well, last question. It's related to Tim Ferriss, maybe. Um, is there a podcast or a blog or an email newsletter that you recommend the most? Yours. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Um,
1: not really. I... I um depends on the context, It right? depends on the context. You know, for my medical learning, I use certain podcasts and stuff for uh, others, um, you know, for personal enjoyment, for uh, learning outside of sort of the medical world or my leadership, I turn to other sources. And, and so what I, I think what my view is, is just be very diverse. I think one of the biggest risks of social media is that we create echo chambers and I think that's the biggest risk. We delude ourselves into thinking that we're in this massive internet taking in all this information and actually what we're doing is we're just uh, defining tiny, tiny echo chambers where we reinforce our own messages. And so, you you know, I will scan... You know, Fox News almost every night. I scan CBC every night. I scan the New York Times every night. I'll take a look at the Washington Post every night. I'll take a quick look at Huffington Post every night. Uh, on my Twitter followers, I follow, you know, I follow Trump. I follow Ford. I follow Trudeau. I follow, you know, I, I'm pretty careful to follow an equal number of people from all parties. I follow Andrea Horvath. I follow from Jelena, who's the health critic for the NDP. I follow the, our health minister from the PC party. When I get podcasts from, you know NPR, but I also get podcasts from the UK, and I get podcasts that are Canadian-based. And you know, I just try to, you know, I do some fiction, but I try to do some nonfiction. Um, and I just think that the biggest risk in this information world is that we actually kid ourselves about how much information
0: we're getting. It sounds as if you have exceptional media hygiene, which is something that I also am trying to do. And I'm the same way. I'm warning my kids about. Sure, you can follow follow Donald Trump. But careful who you're liking and be right. definitely be careful about what you're saying, but I'm not discouraging them from following. What do I recommend? What I recommend is diversity
1: and like true diversity. Um, the New York Times has this great new series. I don't know. It feels like 18 months old. We'll say they, it's called um, writings from across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so they'll be a topical issue, um, a new bill that's brought in. The abortion stuff is very topical now and they will present you with links and a quick summary of somebody who's writing from a very far-right conservative perspective, from a far-left, from an economic... I'll put a link
0: to that, too. That's great. um, And,
1: um, you know, it changes, I think. I don't know if they do it every day, but every week. And they'll pick something that's really, you know, like the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and they'll put in three or four writings from like The Republican, from Fox News, from people who are right of center, then they'll put in some from from the far left, they'll put in some in the center, they'll put in some with a high political tone, some from a sort of a women's advocacy group who obviously had certain views about the nomination, and you can just skim it and sort of really, I think that's just so important.
0: It sounds as if it's efficient, right? But also an effective way of scanning multiple perspectives.
1: Yeah, and what I'm also really looking for is just the gap. I'm looking for the difference. So one thing I am not interested in, you know, one risk I have is when you read all these stuff is just reading stuff to reinforce. And so what I, if if I pick up Fox News and it's sort of the first paragraph is saying exactly the same thing as the New York Times, I'm not gonna finish the article. But if they're coming at it in something new, I'm like, okay, And, and I sort of think there's something there for me, then I might do it or even just scan the headlines. Now, it is fascinating. If you just open the headline on five uh, online newspapers, you would actually think you're in a completely different world. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, what one person puts as above the fold or their landing page article may not be anywhere on another's. And you're just like, that's fascinating. It is. Um, because if you're only reading that one paper, you, you sort of think that's the issue of the day. And another large, large, large paper hasn't even put it anywhere on their first page. Like, nowhere.
0: I love that you call it paper. Yeah. (laughs) But you don't
1: use the paper. I don't. The only time I use paper is when I get to fly. And then I love taking these paper onto the plane.
0: Yeah. But other than that, no. That's funny.
1: Okay, is there anything else you want
0: to add? No, I just think it's great. I think this is, uh, I think it's it's great to have these types of conversations. I think it's very important. So thank you so much for sharing your perspective on how to talk to your doctor and everything else. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Well, that was fun. I knew Dr. Tepper was intelligent, but he really is a good guy, isn't he? Once we were done the interview, we immediately left his office and took the elevator down to the main floor of the hospital, where he had another important meeting. All along the way, he was pleasantly greeting hospital staff. He has so much energy. Let me now summarize some of the main points that he provided in terms of advice for us and how to talk to our doctors. Again, you can easily access this list in the show notes on the Talk About Talk website. Just look under the podcast tab. First, though, I want to highlight again how he started the interview. Dr. Tepper said, We just want people to come in and see us when they need to. He added that we should not hesitate to make an appointment. It's more important to err on the side of caution. And the thing is, even if it turns out to be physically not important, If it's emotionally distressing for you, that's enough reason to come in, in and of itself, just for the mental reassurance. So go see your doctor.
1: You can do it!
0: Okay, here are the five takeaways that will help you talk with your doctor more effectively. Number one, lists. Whether it's on paper or on your phone, Dr. Tepper encourages his patients to make lists of things that they want to talk about in their appointments. He also suggests prioritizing. So tell the doctor what your primary concern is first. Then share the whole list so the doctor can validate what's most important. Second, related to bringing people to your appointment. Sometimes this can be a great idea just in terms of remembering everything that the doctor says. Dr. Tepper added that if you are accompanying someone on a medical appointment, be it a teenager or someone elderly or whomever, we should also give the patient some time alone with the doctor. Sometimes the patient might be a little shy about sharing important things when their family and friends are around. Now, on to number three, the Google effect. We've all heard about how people Google their symptoms and then they get hysterical with their self-diagnosis. And how this drives doctors crazy. Well, Dr. Tepper reminded us that this has actually been going on since the beginning of time, just with different sources. Our sources used to be friends and family, and maybe books. Now, it's the internet. The most important thing here that we need to consider is the quality of the source. Random opinion websites and many for-profit online resources are less dependable than government-sanctioned resources or academic articles. Dr. Tepper encourages us not only to be careful about the quality of our sources, but also to ask our doctors for recommendations of online resources that might be more useful for us. The fourth thing that Dr. Tepper encourages us to do is ask lots of questions. I mentioned to Dr. Tepper how in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, he highlights that hope is not a plan, and that applies to both patients as well as doctors. It's human nature to avoid the negative, and sometimes, at least in the medical context, this is not effective. In order to get the most thorough diagnosis and treatment, Dr. Tepper encourages us to ask lots of questions. He suggests open-ended questions such as, Is there anything else I should be thinking about? Or, is there anything else that other patients who are in my situations have also considered? Got it? Ask questions. Okay, the fifth and last thing is strategies for when we're feeling awkward around our doctor. Dr. Tepper suggests that we ask ourselves why we're feeling awkward. If it's because we think that the doctor might judge us, we could start just by saying that. Be honest. It could be something like, I hope you don't think anything less of me, but I have a question. Most doctors are more open to things than we might believe, and they really have seen it all. If, on the other hand, you're feeling awkward because you're concerned about privacy or confidentiality, Dr. Tepper highlights that this is a very common concern that doctors hear about a lot, so don't hesitate to bring it up. You could simply ask, who else can access this information? Or, if there's something in particular that you don't want on your file, you can ask your doctor to black box that part of the information. Dr. Tepper suggests saying something like, listen, you know, I don't care if you know about my peeing and my pooing, whatever, but when it comes to this particular thing, I want it black boxed. Done. Dr. Tepper also shared how he encourages his patients who are embarrassed to share something that instead they write him a letter. Sometimes it is a lot easier to write something than it is to say it, isn't it? I love that idea. So there you are five things we can take away in terms of how best to communicate with our doctors. They are, number one, use lists. Number two, considerations regarding bringing people to our appointments. Number three, the Google effect and the quality of our information sources. Number four, asking questions. And last, a few strategies for when we're feeling awkward or embarrassed. Well, I hope you found this helpful. I know I did. Dr. Tepper concluded by highlighting how significant communication is between a patient and a doctor. He said, and I quote, Obviously we do tests and we do physical exams, but most of the value is coming from the communication. I'll do a physical exam, and yes, I might order an x-ray or some blood work, but most of what I need is coming from the communication. The more we can structure the communication part to be as successful as possible, that really is the key. Well put. Thank you so much, Dr. Tepper. If you want to check out North York General Hospital or any of the resources that Dr. Tepper highlighted, they're all in the show notes on the podcast page of the Talk About Talk website. So, Talk About Talk listeners, I want to thank you now. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and subscribe to the weekly email blog where you can learn even more. Just go to talkabouttalk.com to sign up. That's it. Thanks again for listening and talk soon.